Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick Vinzant. Coming up in this episode, the science of boredom and the most boring things. Boredom is this uncomfortable state of wanting but failing to engage with the world. I don't like to make the judgment, is boredom good or bad? It's what we do with it that makes it good or bad. But the signal itself is useful. It's functional. Um, and what do I mean by that? It's, it's a call to action. When we're bored, there is this tendency, uh, for some of us at least, to engage in aggressive and harmful behaviors. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, subscribe. Leave us a rating or a review. We really appreciate it. It helps out the show. And more than anything, we just like hearing from you. So our first guest studies boredom, why we get bored, why some people get more bored than others, and what we can do about it. This is boredom researcher James Dankert. Why do we get bored? There's lots of different reasons why we might get bored, right? The prime one that most people think about is monotony. If something's just unchanging over and over and over again, like, you know, that sort of monotony, that repetition, that nothing's changing, that can be very boring. One of the things that a colleague of mine, one end Van Tilburg says too, if we find things meaningless, right? So if what you're doing, you know, you feel like you're constrained because you have to do it, you can't get out of it, but you're just looking at it thinking, this is pointless. This is just doesn't matter to me and, it, and I can't see how to make it matter to me. That'll make you bored as well. Um, there are situations too where, you know, if you find yourself trying or being challenged to do something, but it's just way outside of your capacities. Maybe before you started, you thought it wasn't going to be. Maybe you thought you'd be able to cope. But for whatever reason, it's just this is way too complex. You mentioned a, um, one of your, your podcasts with a particle physicist. You know, some of us might sit in a particle physicist lecture and think, man, I thought this was going to be interesting, but I just can't keep up. That could get you bored as well. So there's any number of sort of circumstances that will lead us to being bored. I think monotony and meaning are the two heavy hitters on that front. Does it matter like how in, how engaging the activity is, right? Like I think of, okay, everybody knows that doing taxes can be boring, but like can people get bored going skydiving? <laughs> like if you're just not interested and you do it all the time, like is somebody going to be like, all right, jumping out of this plane again. <laughs> I took a couple of uh, jumps out of airplanes when I was a younger person, younger and sillier person. I thought it was great fun and, and thought I might do more of it and, and ended up not for various sorts of reasons. I don't know if you can get bored jumping out of an airplane, um, but the first thing you asked was, you know, does it matter how engaging it is? And that's absolutely the thing that matters, right? If whatever it is that you're doing, if it's not engaging, you're going to find it boring. And when you bring up the example of someone like a, a skydiver, well, typically those guys don't just sort of spend 20 years doing the same jump over and over again. They don't. They challenge themselves. They might do team jumps. They might do f jumps with, you know, 30 people to see what sort of figuration, configurations they can do. They might go from jumping from planes to base jumping. Always, in some sense, it feels a little bit like an addictive behavior, always upping the adrenaline um, for, for some of these people, not for all, um, but also just changing what the goal is and changing what it is that you're trying to achieve, right? Because I think regardless of what we do, whether it's taxes or skydiving, if it's the same every time, then we're not challenging ourselves. That sort of brings me to a, a, an aspect of boredom that's really critical, I think, that when we're bored, it's sort of made pretty obvious to us that we're not being very effective agents, right? We're not exercising our agency, which is to say, we're not pursuing goals that we've chosen in the way that we want to pursue them. 
And so, you know, you, you, you want to change it up and that'll be true for the skydiver as much as it is for the, the tax accountant. So can we will ourselves out of this, right? I think that anybody who has a job can relate in the sense that there are things that you just have to do that you have no interest in doing, right? <laughs> can we just will our way out of this, even if it's just something that I just don't care about this thing? It's going to be tough, right? I mean, I think sometimes that sort of puts the onus right back on the person, which is something that's interesting about boredom because it really is in you. It's something that you're feeling. You're feeling disengaged. You want something, but you don't know what it is and you can't, don't know whether or not you're going to be able to satisfy it. With that sort of job circumstance that you mentioned, sometimes you feel constrained. You're stuck. You, you really can't get out of that sort of circumstance. But what that question sparks in me is the old adage that people use. Many you know, parents have used it on their kids that only boring people get bored. And so we're really sort of casting a moral judgment about being bored. We're sort of saying, if you're bored, you have to fix it. And there's truth to that, that we do have to be the author of our own way out of boredom. Um, but I think it's probably a little bit um, unfair to cast that moral judgment because there are going to be circumstances where you can't just will yourself out of it, right? Those sorts of circumstances where we're constrained, you're stuck at a job that you have to finish this task. This is what you're getting paid for. Um, you know, and there is a, a couple of, um, I think they were Swedish, but I might be, I might be wrong or Danish, um, uh, authors that talk about bore out, which at work, which is the sort of opposite of burnout, if you think. And, you know, these were people that were finding their jobs so miserable because they were bored with them. And ultimately it gets to the final sort of decision that you have to make, which is to say, all right, get a different job, right? Do something else that does engage you, that is meaningful to you and that does matter to you. Um, but, but, uh, I wouldn't, you know, I, I'd be cautious about casting that sort of moral judgment too harshly that, you know, only boring people get bored and it's, and it's entirely up to you. I think there's something to be said for, you know, there are circumstances that are outside of our control that are pretty good producers of boredom. Um, you know, I mean, imagine sort of working on an assembly line. I, you, you've got to stand there and do the thing that you have to do, you know, quality control the widgets that are going past you. Um, so how much of that circumstance can you as an individual really be expected to change? Do we need to be bored though? Like, is there something in our brains that like, look, boredom is, is boredom good in a way? That's yeah, a great question. And essentially says, you know, what's the purpose of being bored? And that's a question that we ask of a lot of affective experiences. What's the person, what's the function of being sad or angry or so on? And some of them seem more obvious than others, but boredom absolutely serves a purpose in our lives. It absolutely has a function that's worthwhile for us. So I don't like to make the judgment is boredom good or bad. It's what we do with it that makes it good or bad. But the signal itself is useful. It's functional. Um, and what do I mean by that? It's, it's a call to action. So what boredom is telling us in that moment when we feel it, it's saying whatever you're doing right now is not satisfying you. It's maybe not meaningful enough. It's maybe not challenging enough. You need to find something else. You need to explore your environment for something else. And when you suggest that boredom serves a functional sort of purpose in our lives, you're also sort of hinting at the fact that it might indeed have an evolutionary history. If boredom is functional, then presumably it was selected for. And if it was selected for in evolution, then presumably we can see it in other animals. And you can. So anyone that's owned a dog knows that dogs get bored, right? You come home and you've got one of your shoes torn up. Well, the dog was bored, and so he tore up your shoe. He didn't have any malice in it. But 
scientifically, we've also sort of demonstrated this. So Georgia Mason and and, uh, and Rebecca Meager did a fantastic study with mink, and they housed these mink in two different cages, really boring cages or interesting cages that had things that the mink could do. And at the end of two weeks of being in these different cages, then they showed them different sorts of objects, objects that the mink might normally like to approach, like a toothbrush. Apparently, according to, to um, this research, mink and, and toothbrushes are like cats and laser pointers. They just love them. Um, and so then they'd show them objects that were neutral, just a bottle of water, and then they show them things that the animal would ne- normally avoid, like the smell of a predator. And their logic was that if the animals in the bad cages, in the boring cages, if they were depressed or if they were sad, they might just fail to approach the things they normally liked. They'd leave the toothbrush alone, right? Or if they were apathetic, they wouldn't approach anything. They'd just become the couch potato and lay there. But if they were bored, they'd approach all kinds of things indiscriminately, even the stuff that they don't normally approach. And that's what they found. They found that the animals were like, give me something, give me anything to to latch onto here. So yeah, boredom is evident in animals um, and it, it has that evolutionary history to it and it serves that function, it serves that purpose for us, it pushes us to act. It kind of sounds like it lets us know what we don't like and then opens us up to trying new things. Yeah, you can say it that way. I mean, I think one of the things that's sort of frustrating and negative about boredom when you're feeling it is that when you say it opens us up to new things, it doesn't do the hard work of figuring out what those new things will be. That's on you right? Boredom's not going to say, oh, look, here's an opportunity. Boredom's just going to say, go find an opportunity, right? So this is sort of classic when you, you know, anyone who's listening who has young children, you know, your child comes to you and they say, I'm bored, right? And as any parent knows, then you sort of say, okay, well, why don't you go read a book? Or why don't you go play basketball with your brother? Or why don't you ride your bike? And the kid says no to all of those options. They dismiss all of them at at once. Because what they're saying is, I've thought of all of those options too, and they just don't, I just don't think they're going to do it for me. So you want something when you're bored, but you're just not sure what it is. The quote I love the most comes from Leo Tolstoy in Anna Karenina, where he describes ennui as the desire for desires. So when you're bored, you really know you want something, but you just don't know what it is. So yes, it can open opportunities, but it can't solve itself for you. Is there something physically happening in our brain when we get bored? Like you could monitor the brain and like, oh, I see this. That guy's bored. That girl's bored. Yeah, it's not quite as simple as that in terms of you know picking up an individual signal that sort of says that's definitely the the signature of being bored. Um, but and we're in the sort of nascent stages of that kind of research. There's a long way to go to try and figure out what the brain correlates are of of being bored. But there are a couple of things that we do know. So. One of the things about being bored is that you're often disengaged. You're not, you're struggling to focus your attention on the task at hand. And we've shown using EEG or electrical signals from the brain that there, there are sort of specific signals that are normally associated with being able to focus attention. And those signals are diminished or lowered when we're bored, right? So that sort of fits well with this story that when you're bored, you're not po- focusing attention well. Um, and then we've also done some functional MRI. And in that, we made use of what's known as a resting state scan. So when you put somebody in an MRI machine and you just ask them to do nothing but sit there, you get a series of brain areas that are activated uh, fairly commonly. And this this uh, network of brain areas is known as the default mode network. And it's sort of activated for a range of different things that can be thought of as internal thought processes. So 
if you're daydreaming, if you're mind wandering, if you're thinking about the past, or even if you're planning for something that you need to do in the future, these internal thoughts that you have, um, these thoughts activate the default mode network. But when we put people in a magnet and we made them bored, and we did this by having them watch a video of two guys hang laundry for eight minutes, which as you can imagine is pretty boring, um, we saw activation in the default mode network. And so why that's interesting is because there is something out there in the world for you to attend to, this movie. But the movie is so boring and so terrible that you sort of switch off from the movie and go into those internal reveries that activate the default network. So, as I say, there's a lot more to be done to try to understand the brain activity associated with being bored, but those are some of the things that we know already. Is is there any indication that – I guess, well, you know, we, we, met, we talked about the idea of starting with the first question a little bit, like – well, what is boredom? Yeah. So boredom is this uncomfortable state of wanting but failing to engage with the world. You really want to be doing something that matters to you, that's meaningful to you, but you can't figure out what that thing might be. And so one of the things that's most commonly associated with people being bored when you ask them, how do you feel, is that they'll report being restless and agitated. And this is what differentiates boredom from something like apathy. If you're apathetic, you don't care. You don't really need to get up off the couch and do anything meaningful. And that's just not boredom. That's apathy. Whereas when you're bored, you feel uncomfortable, you want to be engaged, but you can't quite manage it. You can't quite figure out what that thing will be. Um, and it is also, so, so that's that, that sort of phenomenology. It feels bad and you want to be engaged from a, a cognitive point of view. It's typically a disengaged state. You're not focusing your attention very well. And from a sort of an existential point of view, it has a lot to do with meaning in your life, right? So when we're bored, we're looking around, casting about, and thinking that most of the stuff that's available to us just doesn't seem that meaningful. Um, and so those are the, the best ways I can sort of describe the experience for you. How did you get into this? <laughs> Yeah, there's sort of two. How did things. you say? You know what I want to. You know what I want to research is boredom. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't turn to my parents when I was eight and say, "Hey, mom, dad, I really want to grow up to be a boredom researcher." Um, there were two things that got me into boredom research. Um, so the first one, and I think this is really common in psychologists, we tend to research what we're bad at, right? So I experienced boredom a fair bit from my early twenties. I started sort of experiencing it a lot, and then. Um, you know, it's diminished now as it does for most people in, in later years. But every time I experience it, I, I hate it. I really dislike being bored. And so when I got into research and trying to understand the brain a little bit, you know, this felt like a topic that I could, um, I could plumb the depths of and try and understand a little bit better. And the other reason is, um, a little bit more personal. So when I was 19, my uh, older brother had a car crash and s suffered a severe traumatic brain injury as a consequence of that car crash. He recovered and he recovered to the point where, you know, he was living independently and working and so on. But one of the things that he said after he got to that point of recovery is that he felt bored a lot and a lot more than he did before his car crash. And so that suggested to me that that something organic had changed in his brain. Something about the threshold for experiencing pleasure or being engaged had been raised as a function of his brain injury. Because the part of the brain that was damaged in him, and is commonly damaged in people who have car accidents, is the orbitofrontal cortex, it's just above your eyes. And that part of the brain is critical for representing value and reward. And so then I, I, I went to university and trained as a clinical neuropsychologist, and I had the chance to sort of um, assess people who'd had similar brain injuries to my brother, 
And I would ask them in the, the, the time that we spent together, you know, are you more bored now than you were before your brain injury? And to a number, they all said yes. And to me, they, it wasn't just that they said yes. They almost sort of leapt out of their seats and said, God, yes, yes, I'm so bored, you know. And that said to me that, you know, this was an important part of their experience post-brain damage and no one had asked them about it and no one had thought it was really worthwhile. They thought it was kind of trivial. But to them, it was not trivial. It was a, a, a big change and a consequential change in their lives. So I don't do that clinical work anymore, but we have done some research showing that indeed people who have had traumatic brain injuries do have higher levels of boredom. Um, and so, yeah, that, those are the two things that got me interested in that in, in this research. Are certain people more than predis certain like predisposed to becoming bored? Do, do people get? Does it vary from person to person, like how quickly they get bored? Yeah, so we talk about trait boredom proneness, and so some people are high in boredom proneness, and some people are low in it. Um, so there is a, a wide range of how often people feel it, um, and there are a range of sort of individual differences that we would talk about that make someone a little bit more prone to to boredom. One of the common ones that we've researched a lot is the, the capacity for self-control. And I want to be clear here about what we're sort of talking about. This is not what a lot of people think about in terms of sort of impulse control. So some of your listeners might be familiar with this uh, marshmallow test. You know, you put a marshmallow in front of a kid and you say, you can have that marshmallow now, or you can wait five minutes and have three. And most kids just stuff their face with the marshmallow, right? Because they don't show the impulse control to wait for the, for the, for the bigger reward. And there's all kinds of work sort of suggesting that that has long-term consequences in their lives because people who demonstrate lower levels of self-control have poorer outcomes for mental health and achievement and so on. And what we find is that the boredom-prone, people who are highly boredom-prone, also tend to have lower levels of self-control. Um, and so that's a really important individual difference. They tend to also, there's, there's sort of different ways in which humans pursue goals. And one of the distinctions that social psychologists will make is between what's sort of colloquially known as a just do it mode, people who get on with things, people who just go from one goal to the next and they very rapidly transition. And then a sort of do the right thing mode, people who prefer to sort of assess their options and make sure that they make the choice that's the best choice and they make sure not to make errors and so on. And, you know, each one of us can adopt these modes at different times. It's not as though you're one or the other, right? Um, and, and each of those modes is good under different circumstances. It's good sometimes to sort of weigh up your options and make sure you choose the right thing. And it's good sometimes to just get on with it. But what we find is that the boredom-prone people tend to be those do-the-right-thing people. They, they tend to worry more about the options for action. So they tend then to fail to launch into action because they, 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 they haven't sort of, uh, you know, they're not comfortable with the choices that are in front of them. So that's an individual difference in how people pursue goals that is important. There are, there are a number of others as well. We find that people who are high in neuroticism, so they tend to have a lot of worry about life, they tend to be higher in boredom proneness as well. Um, and there's even things that like people who are higher in what's known as covert narcissism. So covert narcissism is uh, a person who sort of believes the world has failed to see their talents, has failed to see how brilliant they are. And so they're sort of a bit bitter about it, but they're not the arrogant in-your-face narcissist. They're just sort of a bit bitter about the fact that the world hasn't recognized their skills and talents yet. Those people tend to also be high in boredom proneness. So those are the kinds of uh, individual differences that we know about so far that are associated with being more likely to experience boredom. 
is it tied to just overall intelligence in any way? It's so it's an interesting question that there's not a lot of research to suggest that it's tied to intelligence, that the more or less intelligent people are more or less likely to be bored. It does have an impact on achievement. So we find that people who are more boredom prone don't tend to do quite so well in school. Um, but it's not a big difference. It's not as though a boredom prone person goes from an A student to a D student. You know, it's more like a couple of points that are, um, are lost, but sort of fairly consistently. So intelligence, um, you know, hasn't shown up as a prime factor in boredom proneness. Is there f like physical differences in people's brains where like, well, I guess we kind of talked about that already, or and correct me if I'm wrong, right? Like a physical difference that this person is just going to be much more prone to boredom than something else. So what we talked- we already kind of talk about that? Or? Well, what we talked about before was sort of functional changes, right? So I was talking about EEG, electrical signals in the brain that show that when, you, when we're bored, we, we're sort of not attending very well. And I talked about the default network. So when we're bored, we tend to have this internal focus instead of focusing on the task in front of us as we should be. Those are functional changes in the brain. When you ask, are there structural differences? You know, is there something physically different? There's only one study that came out fairly recently, just about six months ago or so, which was fascinating to me, where they looked at gray matter volume. So just the size of different parts of the brain. And they did find that highly boredom prone people had reduced gray matter in some midline structures of the brain, the precuneus and the, and the posterior cingulate. Again, this is also a bit jargon for your, your listeners, but in the middle of the brain. And the precuneus is, um, you know, very important for focusing and, and sustaining attention. Um, and so it might not be that surprising that individuals who struggle to focus their attention also struggle with boredom proneness and that the brain structures necessary for focusing attention are not as voluminous as they are in people who don't have those same struggles. But, you know, at, at the moment, one of the things that's happening in neuroscience is we, we need a lot larger numbers of people to look at these things and have confidence in these effects. So they had, I think, around 70 people in that study. We need more like 7,000. And so we need to do these sort of yeah. um, human connectome uh, kind of projects to, to confirm data of that kind. The big questions that I had going into this, right? Like, okay, well, why do we get bored? And then how do we how do we keep ourselves from getting bored? Hmm. That's the $64,000 question, and I get asked it a lot. And the bottom line is that we don't have any really good data about this. You know, one, one of the trends over the past two decades, I think, is, you know, for people to sort of tout mindfulness training and mindfulness meditation as a kind of solution to everything. Um, I'm highly skeptical of that. And I'm certainly skeptical of it for boredom because in order to engage in mindfulness meditation, you need to have your attention focus on the meditation, whatever it is, whether or not it's, um, you know, whatever various kinds of, of uh, mindfulness meditation styles there are. And so if you've got a boredom prone person who struggles to focus their attention and you say, I know what's going to fix it here, focus your attention. <laughs> I think it's probably not going to work. Um, but we, but we just don't have the data yet. So we'd need to do those kind of intervention studies, find people who are sort of chronically bored and engage them with some sort of strategies or techniques and see whether or not that improve their boredom long term. So the kinds of things that I say at the moment, um, when I get asked this question is that there's a sort of triumvirate of things that you can do when you're in the moment of being bored. I'm not sure how well this helps the chronic bored person, but when you're in that moment, the first thing to do is to take a deep breath. So as I mentioned before, one of the most common things people report when they're bored is that they report feeling agitated and restless. Well, 
it's pretty hard to figure out what you want to do next or what you think would be a meaningful thing to engage with when you're restless, when you're agitated, when you're pacing around, right? So just to calm down, take a deep breath and allow that restlessness to dissipate. That's the first step. The second two steps are really contemplative. And the first one would be to say, well, why am I bored right now? What is it about the circumstance I'm in? And what that allows you to do is to perhaps reframe it, to think about it differently. So, um, you know, people who work on assembly lines are not always bored because they can sometimes reframe the task. There's evidence that people on, you know, assembly lines will say that they, they try to beat their personal best on the line every hour. Well, they've just turned a monotonous and potentially boring task into a personal challenge. And now it's not boring. And so if you find yourself in a moment of boredom, perhaps you can do the same thing. You can reframe the circumstance to be more meaningful, to be more purposeful for you, and now you won't be bored as much. And the third thing is that the other contemplative aspect of this is to sort of spend some time considering what your goals are, right? So boredom is showing us that in this moment, what we're doing is to us not very meaningful, well, what is meaningful to us, right? We don't spend a lot of time in our lives thinking about that, considering what are the goals that I have? Am I pursuing them well? And if not, can I pursue them better? And when I talk about goals like that, I want to be careful about sort of setting people up for, um, you know, unrealistic expectations. I'm not talking about grand goals. I'm not saying that, you know, every time you get bored, you should start to ponder why you haven't yet cured cancer. I'm thinking about, any type of goal that's personally relevant to you, and they could be big and small. It could be from anything from, you know, wanting to sort of foster better relationships with your family and friends or wanting to get something small achieved in a hobby. It doesn't really matter what the size or scope of the goal is. What matters is that it matters to you. So those would be the three things that I'd suggest people could try and do when they're, when they're in the moment of being bored. And then the only other thing I suggest, and this I, I think would work for kids and, and well, well, I hope it would work for kids and teenagers. As I say, I'll repeat, we don't have the data. Um, although there's one paper I can talk about. One thing you could do preemptively is make a plan. So the one paper I'm thinking about comes from Watershoot and colleagues, and they looked at boredom in the pandemic, which, you know, is something people got really interested in all of a sudden when we were shut down in our houses. It's like, oh my God, boredom is going to descend. So they did a study where they looked at how well people had coped in the pandemic and whether or not they'd coped well with their boredom. And the, one of the things that stuck in my mind is that they found that if people had a plan to cope with their boredom, they coped better. They did well. People without a plan, people who hadn't thought ahead, did very poorly and had you know, poorer outcomes because of it. So if you sit down with your children or your teenagers, or if you do it for yourself because you find that you're experiencing boredom a lot, sit down in a calm moment and say, okay, what's my boredom plan, right? And that can be, here's the top five things I might go to. And it might also be, when those top five fail, here's the next thing I'm going to do. I'll go for a run, or I'll or I'll tidy my closet, or I'll do something, right? It, it's the backup activity when the top five things that you list in your boredom plan don't work, because there's no guarantee that they will. I often, I like to say that, you know, my best boredom solution, personally, is my guitar. I turn to it whenever I'm bored, and just start playing around and I might play songs that I know or songs that I've written or I might just tinker. And it's about 80% effective. So that means that 20% of the time I go to it and I'm still bored. <laughs> it didn't work for whatever reason. So I think you have to have that expectation that whatever you put together in your boredom plan, be ready for a backup to that plan because you, your first five things might not work. Okay. 
I don't know if this will be necessarily helpful for the audience or not, but can we kind of self-diagnose my boredom if we can? <laughs> um, so like, and this is, this is something that kind of fascinates me and was the impetus about learning more about this is like, I love this podcast. I love the people that we talk to. I find it fascinating. But when I go to edit and kind of put everything together, there are times that I get so bored and this is a slog and I'm like, oh my God, I'm 10 minutes into this 50-minute interview. Oh, this is awful. (laughs) I guess I know this is hard, but like why would that happen even though I'm interested in it, I'm passionate about it, and still my brain is like, oh. I think that, that first, the first thing I'd say about that is to totally and utterly normalize it, right? I've been involved with a few um, film documentaries and, and you know, quite surprised that in both instances, I was probably interviewed for a total of about eight hours and it wound up, it wouldn't have been more than about two minutes in a movie, right? So these are people who have done the eight hours of interviewing me then they have to go back and do what you just said and edit that eight hours and they edit it down to two minutes and then try and fit it in with the film where, where it sort of makes sense for them. Um, that's a slog, right? And also if I talk about my own work with science, you devise an, a, an experiment, you think about the task that you're going to do, it's exciting, you're working with your students, they go and they collect the data, they show you the data, that's the peak excitement point when they're showing you the data because now you, you learn something new and now you have to spend the next six months writing it up and convincing a journal to publish it. And it might take more than six months. That's the trudge. That, that, that's that's a, a slow sort of drudgery. You've gone past the excitement phase and you're into the phase where, well, now I have to do the slog, right? And I, so I think that's just completely and utterly normal. And, uh, and, and it's so when you say, you know, I'm fully interested in it, you're interested in the here and now and it is interactive, right? And as humans, we're social beasts, right? Um, but when you get to the stuff of editing it, that's not as interactive. That's just you on your own and it, it and you know what's ahead of you. Um, and you've already had the conversation. So you know what the conversation content is going to be like, but now you've got to trudge through it and, and cut it and paste it to make it the product you want it to be. That makes sense. Is there like, I always think of the idea of like a runner, you know, you get the second wind, right? Can we push past our boredom mm. and then, you know, like runners for people who aren't familiar, you're running, you get tired. He's like, oh, I want to quit. I want to quit. And then you get a second wind and then you get revitalized and you can mm. keep going. If you're in a task and you start to get bored with it, like does that happen with boredom where you mm. just, you got to break through the wall and then you're good to go? Personally, I haven't experienced that myself. I think that if I get bored, what I need is a complete break of circumstance. Um, but there may well be people out there listening that, that have exactly had that, you know, pushing through the wall, using that runner's analogy that you're talking about. It's interesting that you bring up the runner's analogy. I mean, first of all, I've never seen anybody running on the streets who looks happy. So I just don't understand why people do it. But, um, but, Me, uh, I say that to my wife every time I see somebody running. Like, I don't run because I've never seen someone who looked like they were enjoying it running. Yeah, and so clearly the runners will tell you they Sorry, enjoy they enjoy the high of breaking through the wall and they enjoy the high of finishing it and and and, and being through it at the end. Um, but a colleague of mine, Vanya Wolf in in Germany, he, he he looks at this. You know, willpower is what he looks at in terms of and, and boredom and self control in terms of how do athletes push through this sort of stuff, right? Because if maybe we can learn some lessons about how athletes push through the pain barriers 
but also for a runner and training, you know, repetition training in the gym or repetition training of skills for, for other sorts of athletes. That repetition is monotonous and boring. How do the athletes push through it, So particularly professional athletes? So he's working on that sort of data now. I don't have anything great to, to report to you, but I suspect the answer will be that with some amount of willpower, whatever willpower is, um, you might be able to push through an episode of boredom. But personally, I think that the, the best way out of boredom is to just break the, the cycle. And so, like I say, stay calm, do that contemplation, but maybe then just do a different task for five minutes, right? And, you know, you talked about I get distracted in the middle of a movie and then I can't get back to the movie. But that sort of distraction, if it's intentional, might allow you to get back to your job with a little bit of renewed vigor or or energy. But as I say, we haven't done the studies on this kind of stuff. This is all just my opinion. You know, I think of always in terms of like opposites. And the only thing that I can compare it to that I've heard about is like the flow state where somebody, (laughs) usually it's like extreme athletes are just totally, totally, completely focused. Can we learn anything like, does the opposite of boredom teach us anything about boredom? Yeah, I think it does. But I think what I would say to you is that there are many opposites of boredom and flow is only one. And flow is a fickle, fickle beast. I mean, any of your listeners who've experienced it, you know, the thing to contemplate about flow is, have you ever intentionally tried to make it happen? And I think that the answer to that is that it's very, very hard to do. Like, you know, you 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 find yourself in flow almost accidentally at, at times. And, you know, there are great feelings. It's a very positive feeling. You feel like you're making progress on your goals and you feel like you're just performing beautifully and the rest of the world has just dropped away and it doesn't even need to exist. But it's hard to manufacture, right? So, But the, the good news is that it's not the only opposite of boredom. There are a heap of things. So being curious is an opposite of boredom because you can't be bored while you're curious at the same time. If you're curious about something, if you're inquisitive about something, that you cannot be bored at the same time. Those two things are sort of antithetical to one another. Um, just being engaged, right? So you don't need the extreme state of flow. You know, if you've sat through a movie and you didn't get distracted by your phone, well, you were probably engaged by it. That's an opposite of boredom. But you didn't have to be in the in a flow state. You were just engaged by the movie. And there's any number of things that we can be engaged by. Um, and I think another one that you, you can, you know, um, engage in meditation, as I talked about before, and, you know, it's very hard to imagine being bored if you're successfully meditating, right? And that brings me to the last one that I think is an opposite of, of boredom that I think is a really interesting case study, and that is relaxation, right? So when most of us go on holidays, we're not necessarily going gung-ho at any particular task. We might be on the beach reading a... A, a pulp novel of, you know, some detective novel or something and that we don't care about and we won't remember once we've finished. Um, so we're not really doing anything particularly meaningful. We're not doing anything particularly challenging and yet we're not bored, but we're sort of engaging in being relaxed, right? Because we need that recharge time or we, we, we've sought that recharge time. So there's two things then that I'd point out as opposites of boredom that I think are key and help us understand boredom a little bit better. So one is that the opposite of boredom in all its many forms is just being engaged. So if you're engaged with the world, either because you're curious or you're relaxing or you're in flow, then you can't be bored, right? So that is the the, the sort of opposite of boredom. And the, the second thing is that it gets back to this notion, I think, of agency. So when you're the one that's in control, when you're the one choosing what you're doing now, 
I don't think it's, I think it's very hard for me to imagine also being bored, right? So you're choosing to relax. You're choosing to meditate. You're choosing to be in a, you know, necessarily choosing to be in a flow state, but you're choosing to engage with whatever task is around. You're demonstrating to yourself that you're the agent, you're the author of your actions. And in that state, when you're successfully expressing your agency, I think it's very hard to be bored. Are you ready for some harder slash listener submitted questions? <laughs> Fantastic. Yes. What do you think about the saying only bored people are boring? Yeah, only boring people get bored. Um, it's, it's a moral judgment and I don't think it's right. What I think it says is that people who make that claim just deal with their boredom exceptionally well. So um, in the book that I wrote with uh, my colleague John Eastwood, Out of My Skull, we interviewed, we had the good fortune, or I had the good fortune of interviewing Chris Hadfield, who was the uh, Canadian astronaut who ran the International Space Station in the uh, 2010s. And Hadfield claims that only boring people get bored and that he never gets bored. And then you have a conversation with him that goes on for a little while and you find out that's not true. He gets bored. So he grew up on a farm in southwestern Ontario and he describes, um, you know, uh, plowing the fields. And he said he really enjoyed plowing the fields. You'd see this open field in front of you and your plowed field behind you so you could see your progress and you could understand that, that, you know, you're achieving a goal and you're doing a good job. But what he really hated was this other job he had to do, which was known as, as harrowing. And harrowing, I had no idea what this was, is apparently plowing a field that's already been plowed. So you're breaking up big chunks of mud and making it into smaller chunks of mud. So in front of you is mud, behind you is mud, you can't see your progress, and it's boring. And so he said that whenever he had to do that, he would challenge himself by trying to see how long he could hold his breath for. And I'm like thinking in the back of my mind, I didn't want to insult the guy, but you know, probably not the greatest idea to be doing something like that while you're you know, piloting heavy machinery. But that's all right. The point being that Chris Hadfield indeed got gets bored, but when he does, he almost immediately finds something to occupy his mind that puts the boredom aside. And so I think that for the people who say only boring people get bored, what they're really saying is that, um, you know, when I get bored, I'm really quick at dealing with it. So why aren't you? And one of the things too, that we know from a recent study, um, again, from, from a colleague of mine in, in the UK, one and Van Tilburg, is that there's actually characteristics of boring people that are not about how often they get bored we code people as being boring if they don't listen to us so if people who are sort of a bit more narcissistic and i mean now the kind of grandiose overt narcissistic that commandeer every conversation and never really listen to what you've got to say i kind of think of those people as being bores and so it's just not true that people who experience boredom boredom are necessarily boring themselves it's just not the case why are some people boring though, right? Like some people are just like, God, that person's boring. <laughs> is it is it them or is it me? Well, potentially an interaction, right? So that there are, you know, there, there's someone out there for all of us, right? So uh, we, we find humans, we've, we're able to sort of partner up and find social groups and, and, and make connections for, for in all sorts of different ways. And that's one of the great things about humanity, I guess. So, you know, people who you might consider and code as being thoroughly boring, hopefully they still have a social network of some kind. Um, the thing that, that came out in that more recent study was that, yeah, people who just don't listen, you know, if you're in a conversation and you don't engage the other person, we all want to feel like what we do matters. But if you're the only person talking and you're the only one that's got anything that you think is relevant, then everyone else has to sort of take a back seat. And that, 
is not really the best way for social interactions to evolve. And so um, I think that's one of the main characteristics that makes uh, makes us code other people as being boring. Is there like is this a mathematical formula in some way? And maybe this is a great analogy. Maybe this is a terrible analogy. But can you look at certain things and be like, okay, that is going to be boring to people. If you make a movie about this and you put this in it and you put that in it and you put this in it, people are going to get bored. Like, can you look at things and be like, that's boring. That's not. Not really, because it's it is a kind of you know what what makes something boring or not boring is a little bit like happiness. What makes you happy is sort of idiosyncratic to you, right? I can't sort of tell you, you know what, you should do this because this makes me happy. I shouldn't do that and hope that somehow that that's going to work for you. And it's the same thing is true of boredom. Whatever makes me happy, or whatever makes me bored, is unique to me. You know, there's millions of people out there who are philatelists that spend a lot of their time poring over stamps and looking at stamps, and they get great joy out of it. And many of us might look at that and say, I can't imagine anything more boring. Well, too bad you don't have to because, you know, that's that just means it's not for you. So I, I don't think there's anything that we can point to and say that's, a, that's a, a, an objectively boring thing. What is people's reaction when you tell them you're a boredom researcher? They laugh. It's the, the first thing that people do is they laugh. <laughs> I mean... If you, if you go out to a party of, um, you know, get together with people and, and, uh, and you want to end a conversation, first thing you do is, you know, people say, well, what do you do? And the first thing you do is you say, I'm a psychologist. That usually ends the conversation because people are like, oh, crap, he's, he's analyzing me now. And it's like, if they probe further, you can say, no, I'm, I'm not that kind of psychologist. I don't want to know about your relationship with your mother. Um, but then, you know, another way that you can end a conversation is you can say, oh, I'm a professor. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay. And people sort of tend to think, well, you're a snooty intellectual and you won't want to talk to anybody who's not also a snooty intellectual, which is not true of most of my colleagues, but I think that's what some people assume. And then the last way to end a conversation fairly rapidly, but not as badly. So I say, what do you research? Boredom. And people tend to laugh because they think, really? That just, that doesn't even sound like a thing. Why is that a thing? And then, then you spend the, you know, the next couple of minutes explaining to them why it's a thing and why it's important. It's consequential. Um, and, and then that's probably it. We should then talk about sports or something after that. I guess that that's one of the questions that we kind of had and something that I was wondering is like, I know there's not a way to like rank this in terms of a scale of one to 10, but how big of a problem is boredom for us? Yeah. That, you, like, is it an inconvenience or is it like, no, this is a real problem for some people. Yeah. I love this phrase that, that, um, someone gave me, a, a journalist actually gave me many years ago now that she thought that boredom was just part of the furniture of life. You know, it should be, just be a trivial thing. And I think that people have treated it as a trivial thing, as part of the furniture of life. But it's not. It's not trivial at all. So it's it's associated, you know, chronic boredom, so boredom proneness is associated with higher levels of, of poor mental health, so increased rates of depression and anxiety. It's associated with problems of addiction. So people who are highly boredom prone tend to be uh, more at risk of alcohol and drug addiction. It's been associated with problem gambling. So people who express problem gambling, so, you know, particularly people who are addicted to slot machines, they will report that they're on there because they're bored. And yet, you know, being stuck on the same slot machine, which seems boring to me, is not boring to them. I guess there's lots of bells and whistles on those machines. So it's associated with a lot of ills of mental health. It's also associated with things that sort of from a societal perspective, we really you know, wouldn't encourage. So there's a strong association between boredom and aggression. 
there were um, riots in the in the streets of London in 2011. And when people were interviewed, particularly young males were interviewed afterwards, they said, why did you join in? Why did you join in the looting? They said, ah, oh, it was the end of summer and I was bored. And there are a number of not just anecdotal, but sort of experimental studies that will show that when we're bored, there is this tendency, uh, for some of us at least, to engage in aggressive and harmful behaviours. So it's not inconsequential. And we also know it's not inconsequential from the point of view of, of two other domains that I think are, are worth pointing out. One is education. We know that if you're chronically bored, that you won't do as well in your education. And so it's incumbent upon us to try and make our education as least boring as we possibly can. And I think there are other occupations where boredom could be a real hazard. So if you think about any occupation that has a high requirement for vigilance, you really need to be paying close attention to your job, but it's also monotonous. So think air traffic control or, you know, there was a, a disaster in um, Canada a, a number of years back uh, in a place called Lac Magantic, where uh, a, a train got off the rails and, and burst into flames and caused an enormous amount of damage. Potentially, the failure to, to focus your attention in instances like that is the cause of those accidents. And if the job is monotonous and unchanging and not particularly meaningful, then I, and so boring to the person doing that job, then we're at risk of those kinds of accidents happening more frequently. So, yeah, it's, it's, I, I can't rank it. You're quite right. There's no rank that puts it up there. It's not as bad as, uh, you know, as, as some things, I'm, I'm sure. Um, but it's also, it is quite consequential. Is there any kind of pattern to boredom in the sense that like people are most bored at Tuesday at 3 p.m. <laughs> or is there any kind of pattern either throughout our days in the sense that like this time of year, this time of day, this day of the week mm. or throughout our lives? We're like you're probably most bored between 10 and 20 or actually it's between these ages. Is there any patterns to it? There is a pattern over the lifespan that's that's worth mentioning. All of the other sort of domains that you talked about there, I'm not aware of any data that sort of really, you know, says it's it's mostly, you know, people talk about hump day during the week. You know, I don't think that people get more bored on Wednesdays than they do on any other day during the week. But, you know, maybe they do. I just don't know that data. Um, but over our lifespan, boredom sort of tends to start rising in those early teenage years. We, we need a lot more data on this, but the, the data we do have says that it tends to rise then. It starts to sort of peak at, age 17 or 18 and then starts to dip and that's a really important point in our development because around those late teenage years and the early 20s that's the final stage of brain maturation so you start to um, do what's called myelination which is essentially this fatty coating that goes around your neurons and aids transmission of information and so um, that myelination of your frontal cortex that's happening between 17 and 22 like you know you're not really fully developed until those early 20s years so around that time when you're developing the frontal part of your brain that's really critical for self-regulation self-control goal pursuit decision decision making and so on around that time your boredom starts to drop and it drops off into the you know 20s 30s and 40s and 50s and in part some of that's going to be about responsibilities you know who among us has the time to be bored when you're you know pursuing your career when you're raising your children when you're doing all these other sorts of things um, and then it does show there are uh, some instances now where we see a rise into the 60s and beyond. And one of the um, notions there about that rise at the later stage of our lifespan is that it's sort of strongly associated with loneliness. And so we talk about a social connectedness in that age range. And if the, the people that have a good social network and good social connectedness tend not to be bored in their 60s, 70s and beyond. 
But for those of us who find ourselves not as connected, then boredom can become a real problem. What's social media doing to us? <laughs> Technology's ruining my brain. I love this question in some senses because there's this notion that Socrates said that, that um, writing things down was going to ruin our brains. He was worried that if we wrote down all of our knowledge, that that would mean that our faculty for memory would just disappear. And the irony of that is, of course, that we wouldn't have even known that had Plato not written down the things that Socrates said. Um, so, you know, we, we, we have these sort of notions that every new technology, whether or not it's the pen and paper or whether or not it's the Internet or whether or not it's social media, every new media is going to ruin our brain. So f from the outset, I want to say, no, it's not right. It's going to do amazing things for us right now. You and I are on you know, whatever this program is, a Zoom. You know, it's not Zoom, but whatever that is, we're on this Internet talking. You're you're on one side of the continent. I'm on the other. And we can talk with each other about things we're interested in. That's flat out amazing right? That's fantastic. My family's back in Australia and in times gone past, I'd have to pen a letter, put it on a boat and wait six months before they were able to read it. Things are better with this new technology. And I think we, we need to start from that place that the new technologies have done wonderful things for us. But it is also true to say that for some people, for a handful of people, and the evidence at the moment is about 4%, our attachment to our phones and to social media can become problematic. So we actually talk about the, the phrase used is problematic smartphone use, and it has characteristics that are very much like addiction. So you continually ramp up your use of the phone or you continually ramp up how often you turn to social media. You feel anxious when you're not with your phone or you're not on social media. Those two characteristics are very much the characteristics that you see in addictions to substances. Um, and the, the work from John Elhai and, and colleagues and from people, there's a couple of labs in China that are doing this work, shows that boredom is a real driver of this. That when we're bored, we turn to our phone because it's an easy occupation thing, right? It, it, it occupies your mind very quickly and very easily. And it has the bells and whistles like a slot machine um, and like advertising. Social media has figured out the ways to capture our attention. And so we turn to it and it sort of like dissipates the boredom immediately. But it doesn't do a very good job long term because we go down the rabbit hole of Twitter and we find that we've spent half an hour or God forbid longer. And then you get off it and you think, well, what did I just do for the last hour? Right. It's not particularly meaningful and it's not particularly fostering the goals that we want to pursue. Right. So I want to say fairly clearly, I think there's nothing wrong with tech. There's nothing wrong with social. No, it's not nothing wrong. It's, you know, we can use social media in positive ways and we need to be vigilant individually and as a society as to the ways in which we might be misusing or abusing social media and technology more largely, more broadly. Um, but in general, it allows us to do wonderful things. Does, does boredom have anything to do with attention span? Well, there's a claim that people want to make that our attention span over the past couple of decades has been gradually decreasing. And I, I don't know what sort of metrics people use to, to measure that, you know, um, I guess in the 50s, they used to do advertisements for products that went 50 minutes long. You know, <laughs> you're watching an advertisement for a vacuum cleaner on TV in 1950s that was like a program length. Uh, and now, you know, the world's shortest ad is, a, is less than a second or something like that. Um, and that, that sort of suggests that, yeah, we don't have the attention span that we used to. Um, again, I think that that's probably an overblown claim that indeed, you know, we, we might, um, you know, and, and, and even in things like, the, the films that we watch, you know, um, I, I went back and watched one of my favorite films a while back, The Deer Hunter. 
And, uh, you know, that's a fairly powerful and dramatic movie. But the first half of it is about a Polish wedding. I mean, it, it's, it's quite long and it's quite slow. And it's quite drawn out. It's quite beautiful and quite quite uh, um, dramatic. But um, it wasn't, it, it's not, it's not John Wick, you know. It's not. It's not as fast and as as you know, changing yeah, from yeah, moment yeah. to moment as any of those kind of movies, right? Um, so there's there's possibly a sense in which our tastes, our predilections for things, show that we prefer to have things move quickly. But I don't know that that really translates into our attention span is poor. When it comes to boredom, boredom is absolutely associated with poor focusing of attention and poor sustained attention. We know people who suffer from ADHD also have high levels of boredom. And so there's, there's absolutely a very strong association between struggles with attention and boredom. Um, but I don't think that that means that as a society writ large that we have a worse attention span than we used to. That's pretty much all the questions I got, man. Is there anything you think that we missed or anything that like, ooh, we should be talking about this or anything like that? One thing I would say is that we know too that boredom proneness is associated with self-esteem as well. So people who are high in boredom proneness don't have very high, they have lower self-esteem. And one of the things about that, we're in the process of investigating that further, there's a related concept of self-efficacy. It's not quite the same as self-esteem. Self-esteem is about, I feel good about who I am. Self-efficacy is, I believe I can do this, right? I know I've got the skills, I'm capable. And I think that people who are boredom prone will have low self-efficacy as well, that they won't feel like they're necessarily capable um, to, to, to reach the goals that they might set for themselves. And I think if that happens early in life, there's going to be long-term consequences. So a lack of a sense of self-efficacy as a young person um, you know, will carry through into your, into your life in negative ways. And so you know, we always come up with the problem that these are correlations, these are individual difference traits. It's very hard to talk about cause. So, you know, will, will it be the failure of self-efficacy or elevated boredom that causes the problems later on? It's going to be very, very hard to determine that without longitudinal studies. But, um, but yeah, I do think early on, if you cope better with boredom when you're a very young person um, and into your teenage years, that will um, probably be associated with much more positive outcomes later. So, I mean, if people want to learn more about this, like... How can they, what, what should they do? I know you've got a book out. Yeah, so uh, John Eastwood and I wrote a book um, that came out in 2020 um, in the middle of the uh, start of the pandemic, I guess, and, uh, and that was uh, Out of My Skull, The Psychology of Boredom. So you can grab that and read that. Um, we also do a blog on psychology today. The blog is called The Engaged Mind. And so we, have, we, we write about various aspects related to boredom. Um, you know, I've got a blog on there about the politics of boredom, um, various sorts of things that you can learn there. I want to thank James so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, we have linked to him on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. And we have also included his information in the episode description. It's kind of strange how interesting boredom is, isn't it? So I want to tell you about a show that I discovered a couple of weeks ago. And I think the concept of it and the episodes are just absolutely fascinating because it really explores everyday people in extraordinary situations. It's called, What Was That Like? And what the show does is it's an interview with people who experienced something 
amazing, whether that is tragic or triumphant. And we're talking about a wide range of circumstances from a person who was mauled by a grizzly bear, somebody who spent 35 years in prison, people who got a deal on Shark Tank. They have about 117 episodes of as of this recording. And I think that there is just a fascinating story from just about everyone and for just about anyone in this podcast. Again, it's called What Was That Like? And it can be found on any podcast app, including Spotify, or at their website, whatwasthatlike.com. Okay, now let's bring in John Shull and get to the pointless part of the show. Do you get bored easily? Uh, I do not, because uh, I can be quite anxious, which... Uh, you know, angsty, which uh, leads to non-boredom because I always find something to do. What are you so anxious about? I don't know, but I, I, I'm i the worst person uh, because literally I'll be, you know, say the wife takes the kids on a Saturday afternoon for a couple of hours. I will sit there having all these ideas of what I'm going to do and I don't do any of them. And then she comes home and then I'm like, well, I just wasted two hours just sitting here thinking about what I was going to do and I didn't do any of it. How come you don't do any of it though? Like, are you paralyzed by analysis? <laughs> right. Are you like, you just can't get started. I, I don't What's know. I, on? I, I think it's because I uh, personally, I think I have so many things that I want to do. It's like, man, well, first off, right. You get this being a dad and this can be for women too. It's like when you have a free hour without your kids or family, it's like, whoa, this is what, what freedom tastes like. Um, and then once you get over that, it's like, well, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do something for myself? You know, it's uh, yeah, there's a lot of things, a lot of factors. So instead you just do nothing. So I just do nothing. I like it. I like <laughs> it. I've got all these things to do and I can't decide which one I'm going to do. So I'll just do nothing. Essentially. I can't do anything until the deadline for it approaches. Like there's just, <laughs> my brain will not get going until it's like crunch time. How interested in the things that you're doing, though, are you usually? Like on a scale of one to ten, how often, like, how interested are you usually in the thing that you are doing? I'm gonna give I'm gonna give it a five. I'm gonna go about fifty fifty. Half the time, I I care a lot, and the other half, uh, I'm just doing it to get it done. I don't know if I've ever actually put all out effort into anything. <laughs> Not I don't think one that thing. I've ever- I don't know if I've ever put all out effort into anything, even like playing sports, working out, like just tried as hard as I absolutely could. I don't want to, I don't think I've ever gone above an eight. (laughs) Uh, Do you have the desire to try now? Not really. Like I also give an eight level effort at trying to go all out. Like if somebody was to come up to you right now and say, what activity or something would you give a 10 at? Like your, your absolute most try ever. What, what would that activity be or event? What would it be? I can't even think of anything. I just keep a little bit in the tank. <laughs> okay. All right. Let you never me... know when a bear is going to come into your house, man. What if you go all out doing squats? 
Let and me, then somebody let, tries to break into my home and I'm not ready to go. And I'm like, oh, I can defend my household, but too bad I did well, I, all I, out rep. Too bad I didn't max out today and now I can't walk up the stairs. All right, but right? You, you gotta you gotta save some in the tank. That's my philosophy about things. You gotta you're be ready, just, man. You never know when the world's gonna end. You're just talking about a normal day, though. I mean, if, if you were in the Olympic 100 meter dash, you would obviously give it 100 percent, correct? I don't even actually know if I know how to try as hard as I can at anything. Like, if I was to go outside right now and like run as absolutely fast as you could, I don't even know how to do it. I don't think my brain would allow me to do that. It'd be like, yeah, let's not run that hard. Fucking YOLO, right? You're on the YOLO train. No, nobody is. That train is not, not only is it not leaving the station, but it is broken down. And it's one of those things where like you call the mechanic and he looks at that. and He's like, there's no point in even trying to save this. Like, it's not like it needs new tires. It's not like the engine needs to be overhauled. It's like it not, not, it can't even be scrapped out. It needs to be burned and shot into space. That's where YOLO is right now. Come on. Come on. Give me a YOLO. Absolutely not. Come on. Give me. What do you want to do today? You want to. Let's move on to the shout outs. <laughs> so that we don't ever have to hear that phrase again. YOLO to the shout outs. All right. Uh, let's see. Here we go. Uh, Alexis Cruz. Appreciate. AC. You. Asher Smith. Asher, a woman or a man? Uh, un- unclear by the profile picture, I believe. I like that. I respect it. I like to introduce my wife, whose name is Dawn, and just let it be ambiguous and see what the person thinks. Just like, oh, man, my partner, Dawn. <laughs> and then just watch their facial reaction to see, like. Dawn hmm. is a, a clearly feminine name, though. D O N. Oh, oh yeah i got <laughs> okay yeah it's very it's very entertaining to me <clears throat> all right uh danny fernandez uh heather davis andrew willis uh mike smith lloyd mirafuentes adia kume and jara olander congratulations all of you got the special shout outs pat yourself on the back if you're listening i think it's episode. I think it's time for us to talk about something, but I'm a little bit concerned that it's going to give you a complex. Okay. But I've noticed that you do it, and a lot of people seem to do it. It seems to have been brought up in the Zoom era where people say something and then they go. <laughs> so do do like two or three shout outs and then see what happens. But now I'm thinking about it. Right. Have you never noticed that you do that? That people do that because I had a former coworker that would do it all the time. And I really noticed. And then I noticed that you only do it in shout outs. You go like Heather Cruz. It's like you're getting your lips ready for the next name. Heather Davis. Danny Fernandez. Alexis Cruz. Yeah, it's hard, right? Did you notice that? Did you notice that you did that? No, but now I'm going to do my best next time. I'm just going to go Andrew Willis, Heather Davis, Danny Fernandez, Alexis Cruz. We're done. It's hard. <laughs> I have a speaking problem or not a speaking problem. Not that you have an issue, but That's I always true. say right and look way too much. I'm like, right. Uh, I mean, I, I, oh, I just did it. Didn't I? Right. Now you're going to notice all the fucking time. Like, fuck, you there it is it again. again. I have my hand over my mouth. as so I don't have to 
to hear it. Uh, all do right. Do you have a lot of, do you have juicy lips? Is that the issue? No, I think I have regular lips. Feel your lips right now. How Are they moist or dry? They're pretty moist. You'd think people's lips would be moister. Moist. This is a weird conversation. You don't think that your lips should be moister, moistier right now? I mean, I'm just li- now, but now I'm licking them. You don't think about your lips very much, do you? For those of you who don't know what we're doing, uh, we're on a Zoom call, uh, uh, basically licking our lips at each other. It's it's fascinating. Nothing wrong with two heterosexual men licking their lips at each other. The only problem that I can see is the flavor saver and slight mustache you have going. Oh, man, it looks good, doesn't it? Yeah, you got to do something about it. All right, uh, let's see a couple of bangers for you. Uh, what's more disappointing once you uh, once you finally get to the meat? Uh, eating a crab leg or a chicken wing? Well, crab leg. Crab leg's an incredible waste of time. Seafood entirely, in my opinion, aside from hush puppies, is an entire waste of time. Because you don't really like seafood. You like the sauces that they put in it. If you like crab legs, you don't like crab legs. You like butter. I mean, I, I would beg to differ. It's kind of fun cracking the leg and then pulling the meat out and sucking the meat off the, the tendon or the bone. Oh, yeah. Uh, Anytime you get to suck the meat off the bones, a great time, huh? Oh, see here. See, it's always going to turn into one of those. Uh, all right, moving on, I guess. Uh, that was a failure. It's just too much effort for me. It's Seafood is too much work. It's too much work. If it takes me longer to prepare it than to eat it, I'm not interested. All right, uh, which one of these is uh the most uh nerve-wracking or was the most nerve-wracking for you uh a first date the first day of a new job or the first day of college i don't even remember the first day of college (laughs) i honestly don't even remember like my first day Mm. of college my first date I've always been too much of just like, fuck it. So I don't really worry about that stuff. I never, maybe I'm alone in this, but I never really get anxious about the first of anything. What I don't like is like the fourth or fifth. The thing that I try to avoid with people more than anything else is when you kind of know someone Mm -hmm. and have to talk to them, but you don't (laughs) really want to talk to them. Sure. Once their expectation has been established, that's when I hate it. That's when I, that's what I fear the most is like, oh God, there's my neighbor. I got to say something. (laughs) That is kind of the worst. Neighbors, you know, listen, I love my neighbors, uh, but that is kind of terrible. Like, because you know, you're going to be outside and then they're going to come outside. They're going to want to know how your life is, what's going on, try to get the dirt on you. I, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I hate my fourth to seventh encounter with people. So specific. Yeah. Well, it's that right in there where the expectations, you right where it starts to be expectations are starting to be like, oh, there's this person. Let's have a chat again. We're going to be friends. We're going to be enemies. We're going to like each other. It's too stressful for me. I don't like that. All right. Well, we'll move on from that. Uh, that all kind of goes into your given 70%. 
Uh, so the the question was asked again this week on the profoundly pointless uh, Twitter uh, feed <laughs> channel. Uh, what topic should we discuss this week? Uh, they were the Emmys, a weekend football recap, the Queen Elizabeth uh, obviously passing, uh, or Nintendo Direct and uh, <laughs> Nintendo Direct One. So, what happened with Nintendo Direct? Uh, so, uh, I, I, I guess I'll start. I did not know what Nintendo direct was, uh, but it was trending. So I said, you know what? We'll see what it is. Must be something. Uh, so really all it is always good to listen to people who don't know what they're talking about. Well, that's what the show is about. We're pointless and we're profound. Uh, but what it is basically is Nintendo usually does it in June. It's like their big launch event for all their winter games. And then I thought, you know, that's kind of boring just to talk about. Every every company does that. They have some kind of launch for their future, you know, games, whatever. But what caught my eye, and we've talked about this on this podcast before, is your love for Zelda and my disdain for Zelda. Uh, just because I think it's it's a good franchise. It's a great franchise. But if you want to talk about something that's boring... Zelda can be quite boring from time to time. Have you played Zelda? Do you not know what Zelda is? Zelda is arguably not. No, it's not. Zelda is the greatest video game franchise of all time. Mario is very solid and much more popular, but Zelda has consistently set the standard for every video game moving forward. Where do people look for for innovation? How to do something? Look at open world games. There was a lot of open world games. And then Zelda Breath of the Wild basically showed that, like, no, this is how you do this. Well, Those games are not only great stories, but they are complex and they are fun and they are replayable. Zelda is the best video game franchise of all time. And I don't even think it's close. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to be uneducated here and tell you that Mario is by far the best franchise. It's the most known. It's the probably the highest grossing. It spawned the most uh, n- noticeable characters around the world. I mean, Pokemon. I would put Pokemon in front of Zelda as a franchise. Right, but that's because you don't know what you're talking about. I I, I think it's tough. I really do. I, I think, I, once again, I'm not taking anything away from Zelda. But, but, I, listen, I, but listen to the conversation that you're having. You don't like Zelda. And even though you don't like Zelda, you're still putting it up there in the top three. John muted himself. God, he's going. He's going. He muted himself right now. (laughs) Oh, this is the second time it's happened where he goes on this big, great rant. And like he was interested. He was eloquent. He had it all together. And he turned his mic off. Okay, John's got his microphone working again. Do you want to try to do your rant? Or do you feel like you lost the moment and will never get it back? <laughs> I was in the moment. All, all <laughs> I'm like flustered right now. All I was saying uh, was that uh, I was trying to play devil's advocate to your point. I, I don't believe you're right in saying Zelda is the best franchise of all time. But in saying that, Nintendo Direct, they're going to, they're going to, uh, the Breath of the Wild, they're going to, come out with the name for the new sequel uh that's going to be released in the in the winter um you know yeah that's the, wait it's going to be released in the winter i i believe so from what i was reading when doing very brief research all you need to know i feel like about zelda breath of the wild is i got that game the day it came out and played it for a solid year 
and never even cared about beating the game. I mean, and I'm not a video game person. No, I mean, I like I said, I you have to recognize when something's great. Like no one's going to say Tom Brady's garbage. What are you going to put as number one then? Mario. I think Mario is more popular, but I think Zelda has had a bigger influence. That's what I think that you're missing about it is the influence that Zelda has had on other games. Did you know that Mario hits it with his hand, not his head? <laughs> Can we just move on? Move on. All right, you ready for our top five? I am. Let's uh, do it. Okay. Our top five is top five most boring things. Brushing your teeth. Oh, I just tune out mentally. Yeah, it's it's boring. It's it's I don't want to be doing this. It's the same damn thing every morning and night. But here we go. I'll put you know put the toothpaste on the toothbrush, run it under the water, twenty set you know, twenty times on the left, twenty times on the right, ten in the middle, take a drink, spit it out, okay. What about peeing then? I mean you pee more than you floss. Why wouldn't peeing be more boring? Yeah, but you but just gotta peeing, you know, first off, anything to have to do with, you know, peeing or pooping is not boring. It can be very fun. I would say that peeing is probably much funner for men than it is for women. Because ours is much more interactive, right? You're holding something, you can <laughs> aim it. Peeing is much funner for men than it is for women. Yeah, it's much more fun, for sure. Peeing is actually kind of entertaining. Yeah, yeah, it, it can be. If you're a man, if you're a woman, it's just a waterfall going down a stream, but... You're a man. You got that hot dog flopping around that bun. Anyways, what's your number five? Waiting for the internet. Okay. I mean, I, I could see that being on a list 15 years ago, but not, not in today's list. Oh, I think it's much worse now. That's if good. you're waiting on something that's like uploading or you've got slow internet. Mm-hmm. Ooh. That's boring because there's nothing else that you can do. <laughs> uh, my number four is uh, standing in line at the grocery store. Mm. Now, specifically the grocery store or standing in line anywhere? Uh, grocery store. I have something something similar a little higher on the list, but standing in line at the grocery store specifically as my number four. I feel like that's pretty good people watching. My number two is a little bit personal, but for me, it's sports analysis and debate. Because none of those guys ever know what the hell they're talking about, and they never get any of the predictions correct. You mean you're number four, correct? Yeah. What did I say? You said number two. Oh, my number four is sports analysis and debate shows. Okay. They don't know what they're talking about. It's entirely meaningless. They're always wrong. And as a former news reporter, I would sometimes talk to those professional athletes about what they thought about sports analysis, (laughs) and they would be like, those guys have no idea what they're talking about. I mean, they're just mouth mouthpieces, right? I mean, half the time, it's kind of like this show. Like, you just stay, say things to rile me up, and I'm here just trying to make sense of it all. I'm just confronting you with the truth. <laughs> it's your number three. That's where it gets kind of tough for me, because I, I had a few things on here. Um, I, I, I put chores, like basically like cleaning, dusting, mm. I mean, things, once again, that are mundane that you don't want to do, but you have to do them. They're just terrible and boring. Maybe because I'm more of like, let me see let me see how quickly I can get this done, or let's just fucking get this thing done, mm-hmm. that I generally don't get too bored doing it. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, you. I remember a while back we were talking about mowing the lawn, and I told you it takes me two hours, and you almost lost your mind. I, I'd mowed my lawn, edged it, did everything. Probably took me 25 minutes the other day. Wow, congratulations. I got a system. I'm not messing around, man. I don't have a palatial estate like you do where it's taking me two hours. <laughs> Are you still spending two hours a weekend mowing your lawn? Yeah, at least. It's even worse now because we're going into the fall, so extra things to cut down and get ready and yeah all kinds of crap you gonna rake your leaves you just gonna leave them there to die oh no you gotta rake them oh no i was gonna say you gotta just leave them there to die (laughs) oh man gotta rake them put them in the cool little orange uh, pumpkin plastic bags put them out for halloween kids love them that's a waste of time uh my number three is powerpoint presentations have you ever been interested in a powerpoint presentation in your entire life (laughs) uh no that's actually a great one i mean that is awesome man yeah i have never seen a powerpoint presentation that i've been like "Ooh, (laughs) show me these slides i hope there's slides there i'd really like to see this powerpoint oh the worst too is like when the person's going and you see like 15 out of 67 and you're like no gods no my worst one is when there's a PowerPoint presentation that clearly everybody can read or they just have numbers and they're like, I'm going to now explain every single number. Like, motherfucker, I can read. <laughs> we hit 80 out of 90. Don't need you to explain that. <laughs> I can see it. That's the whole point so that we don't have to be here. PowerPoint presentations. Whoever invented PowerPoint should be ashamed of themselves. I mean, but they're 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 probably billionaires, whoever it is. Right. But they should know how many lives and how much time they have wasted through their PowerPoint presentations. Their invention has sucked the soul out of more people on a daily basis (laughs) than any other benign invention. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's tough. I'm sure there's something we're not thinking of, but that's that's a good one. That is a good one. Probably should have put it number one, honestly. <laughs> What's your number two? Uh, I have like watching boring TV, listening to political speeches. It's, it's, I, you know, not getting obviously into politics in general, but just, you know, listening to somebody, you know, fucking flap their gums about the same thing. It doesn't have to be politics, it can be like sports commentators, but it's just like, I don't give a fuck. Like, why am I sitting here listening to this? Yeah, that's always the worst. It's the worst. Just listening. Like, that's actually kind of what my number two is, is listening to people talk about something you don't care about. Yeah, you know, that that might be a better way to phrase it for, for like, my number two. But, yeah, uh, especially when – I think you were talking about this earlier. When you're, you know, talking to somebody – well, you said meeting somebody or talking to them for the fourth or fifth or seventh time or whatever. But, you know, the worst is when somebody comes up to you that you know is going to want to talk to you for 25 minutes. And you're just like, you want to so badly tell them to fuck off, but then you don't, and then you listen, and you never get those moments back. I like to establish how long a conversation, how much time I have before the conversation starts. <laughs> be like, hey, I got five minutes. And even if the conversation lasts like 30 to 35 minutes, they forget about that. They do. But if you establish right off the bat that like, hey, I got five minutes. <laughs> I only got till nine. Yeah, right. Then you can get out of that conversation much easier. Like, ooh, got a meeting. <laughs> got work to do. Okay, what's your number one? Uh, just not moving, man. Just 
just it could be being stuck in traffic. It could be sitting oh. in, in your office at, you know, and you look at the clock and it's 12 and you're like, man, I still have five more hours of work and I've already done everything I need to do today. Um, you know, just kind of standing still, just watching the seconds uh, tick by. Wasting time is kind of, but is that boring or is that just you're getting, let's see, I don't find that to be boring. I just find it to be a waste of time. It, it all circles back for me to like what I originally said about wasting time to me is anxiousness. So it's not boring because I make it into anxious energy, but wasting time is completely boring. And then you look back and you're like, why the hell did I waste this time? I could have been doing something else. Hmm. I kind of embrace some, like one of my favorite things is when I have to go to like a zoom meeting and the people are late and I get a chance to just kind of do nothing. But ironically, my number one is work meetings. That to me is the most boring thing in the world. I mean, we're because good. all of this could have been an email. I, I agree that things can be mainstreamed, especially now where every meeting is virtual pretty much. Uh, but, you know, I'm in the news business, so having, uh, you know, editorial meetings is important. So I mm-hmm. I understand you're number one, but, uh, oh, as I have a hurricane over here or an earthquake and I shake my computer. Um, oh, boy. Now I'm out of focus. There we go. I'm back. Uh, you know, no one ever, ever said I was a technical guru. Um, uh, I don't even know where I was going with it. I might as well just fucking turn my mic off. God, just... You had two good rants that you were excited uh, about, and then your technological lack of ability just doomed you, man. It's like somebody uh, late last week, I was walking through our, I, I work in a newsroom, and I was walking through, and I kind of bumped into something and just knocked, like it was a domino effect. And the person turned around stone-faced and was like, you're like a big bull in a china shop, aren't you? Like, that's all I am. Uh-huh. Like, I don't know if I have a brain, but I'm, I'm just a big person. Like, I just bounce one from one thing to the other. Like, it, I, I would love to be on the outside looking at me walking up to you, and I just wonder what I would say to myself. Like, that's a big old boy right there. I would just probably be like, I don't have any cake, man. <laughs> Uh, I really only had one thing on my honorable mention and that's, that was just waiting like in an ER or like a waiting room, waiting at a doctor's office. Oh, at a doctor's office. I was going to say an emergency room, man. That's probably not like boring. Like, well, that, that's actually the worst live or die. That's, you know, my (laughs) wife broke her ankle. God bless her. Uh, a while back. And, uh, it was like waiting four hours in the, in the emergency room. I mean, it's, it was nuts. Oh, that's the worst because you have no, I think it's so terrible because you have legitimately no idea what time you are going to be called. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. The order that you arrived in the time of your appointment is meaningless mm-hmm. 100%. because they treat the people who come in like by priorities, which makes sense, right? Like you can't have a gunshot victim come in and be like, sorry, this lady with a broken ankle is ahead of you. Okay, this is starting to get boring, so let's go ahead and call it for this episode. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. We have actually started to add full episodes to YouTube. So if you're looking for a more visual experience, we're profoundly pointless on YouTube. We upload full episodes and short clips as well. So if you get a chance, subscribe, check that out. I think it's a lot easier to add comments on YouTube as well, but we always love hearing from people. So 
If you've got an idea, want to comment on the top five, say something about how this show is boring, let us know. Take care. See you next week.